I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 8. We continue our study of the book of Mark, and today we are in Mark chapter 8. And this is a, this is a great moment in the gospel of Mark, an important turning point, a, a watershed moment in the gospel of Mark. And before I show you why I, I think that's the case, um, and I don't think it's something I think. I think it is the case. Um, before I show you that, I just want to set this text in front of you. And I'd like you to be an observer here. I'd like you to be someone in this crowd. Someone who not has, has heard this Bible story a million times since you were a kid. But I'd like you to watch Jesus. Let's say that you had the privilege of being a part of this crowd somewhere near the Decapolis. And you'd been listening to the teaching of Jesus for three solid days. That, that captivated. So much so that, that you've run out of supplies. You're in the middle of nowhere. And all that's there is Jesus, his band of disciples, this this large crowd of people in the middle of nowhere. Just, just picture it. There's crying babies. There's, there's all, I mean, that's what it would have been like. It would have been just a mass of humanity. And let's say that you had the privilege of sitting close enough, of being near enough to the center of this action, that you could hear the, the words of Christ, to hear his interaction with his disciples, and to even hear the the sorrowful sigh that he lets out. So if at all possible, try to look at this text as if for the first time, because I really do think there's lots for us to gain in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he wants to do to us, how he wants to change us as a result of this text. So let's begin. Mark chapter 8 and... I, I, we just got to go to 21 today. Mark chapter 8, 1 through 21. It, it says this. And during those days, another great crowd gathered. And since they had no food to eat, Jesus called out to his disciples, called them to him and said... I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me now three days and they have no food. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on their way because some of them have come a long distance, a far off distance. And his disciples answered, but where in this wilderness, this desolate place, can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he'd taken the seven loaves and Given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and that's what they did. 
They had a few small fish as well. So he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to pass them out. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmantha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear and don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up twelve they replied and when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? May God bless the reading of his word. And may a spirit open the eyes of our heart to see and hear and understand. Familiarity with a Bible story can sometimes dull our understanding. And it certainly isn't the case that familiarity is a bad thing in and of itself. The scripture repeatedly admonishes God's people to meditate on the word of God. And and for the people of God, familiarity with the scripture is something that's expected. But to observe the miracles of Jesus and to grow bored of them or to even just expect them may have been where the disciples found themselves in Mark chapter 8. Some authors, critical scholars of of the Gospel of Mark, have struggled with this passage because it's so similar 
to something we looked at a few weeks ago when we were in Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. It's a different place. It's a different number of people. There's some insignificant differences, uh, like the kind of baskets that are used. It's a different word here, for example. There's no imagery uh, that's psalm-like about green grass on the hillside. Uh, They were in a kind of a, a distant place, but it wasn't a wilderness, a barren place. This is out there further. That was a a predominantly Jewish area. This is a predominantly Gentile area. And there's a lot of similarities, though, because Jesus miraculously takes what they have and produces uh, enough food for all of them to eat and be satisfied. There are other things common with this passage and the one we looked at before. For example, the compassion of Jesus is on display. But even the compassion has a different nuance here because in Mark chapter 6, his compassion was because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In Mark chapter 8, his compassion has to do with meeting their physical needs because of their journey and how long they've been with him. And so there's, there's something happening here that isn't just a, like a literary technique of, of duplicating the same story twice, which is what, what the critics, some, think of it. This is, this is a repeat miracle. This is Jesus doing it again. And there seems to be an emphasis at this point in Mark's gospel on Jesus trying to further the disciples' understanding, both of who he is and what his destiny is. And that becomes the main thing in this section of Mark. Chapters 8 through 10 are the watershed. They're the the critical point in understanding the identity of Jesus and the destiny of Jesus. This chapter moves towards Peter's great confession at the end of chapter 8. You are the Christ. And as it moves towards that, it it surrounds itself in this this parable about feeding a crowd of outsiders. It surrounds itself with words like see and understand. It's just coming off of chapter 7's miracle with the man who could not hear and who had great difficulty speaking. And Jesus had put his fingers in his ears and grabbed a hold of his tongue and brought him back to full restored hearing and speaking so that he could truly hear and understand and know the voice of the Messiah. This Feeding is surrounded by a story that we'll look at next week, a story about a blind man who Jesus heals in a very similar way that he did the deaf and mute man. And so the idea of seeing and hearing and understanding is on full display in this chapter as the Gospel of Mark moves towards Uh, The hostility of the religious leaders, which is also featured in this feast story as the Pharisees kind of come and interrupt the story and and fly some accusations at Jesus and make some demands of him to to prove something to them, to do some 
cosmological sign, uh, you know, some big eschatological thing they want him to, to prove. And so we have these opponents of Jesus entering in. We have a dullness in the disciples, in their understanding. Uh, you know, the, the reason people struggle with this, this miracle is because how could the disciples possibly ask the same question that they just asked two chapters before? Now, understand the disciples weren't living this in chapters. This was weeks and months later. We don't know exactly how long, but it could have been a a significant amount of time gone by. And the disciples may not have wanted to be so presumptive that, that they know exactly what Jesus would do in this situation. But the fact that they are still not comprehending who Jesus is, the fact that they haven't grasped it yet seems to bring Jesus some consternation. The the sigh that he expresses towards the Pharisees is understandable because their lostness is evident. But the, the questions that he asks his disciples about their understanding and their the the condition of their heart in verse 17, uh, their ability to see in verse 18 and to hear in verse 18, shows that Jesus has concerns not just about those who have identified as his enemies, but those who have identified as his friends. And there's so much familiarity here because these guys have been walking with Jesus a long time and they've already seen a miracle nearly identical to this one. And so it, it makes me say, Lord, how am I needing to see in this chapter and hear and understand? What deficiencies do I have in my apprehending and worshiping and beholding the Son of God where familiarity with his work and his words has caused my heart to be not quick to acknowledge him and seek him and worship him. And so I think that this is, a, this is a story in Mark for the familiar. I think this is a story in Mark for those who have grown dull in their understanding, who have become insensitive towards the glory of Christ. And that's a, that's a dangerous place to be. And that seems to be exactly where where the disciples are. Because before they can really struggle with Jesus' destiny being death, which is what he's going to insist upon in the following chapters, and they're going to argue with him about that. They have to first come to the full realization that he is Messiah and that he is of God and that what he is doing is authoritative and they're still not quite there. They don't get his power. They don't really fully comprehend how able he is. You see, their own expectations and experiences have dulled them to what Jesus is doing. And I'm concerned that these disciples are just like church kids. Just like college students who have begun to go through the motions of their Christian faith. And maybe they've slipped into apathy 
regarding holiness. Or maybe they've slipped into legalism and kind of a, an external form of, of following Jesus, going through the motions. And I think that's exactly what Jesus has in front of him in Mark chapter 8. And so let's look at Jesus. Let's follow him closely here and see if we can, we can gain the kind of seeing and hearing and understanding that he longs for his followers to have. With the goal that, that we, like Peter, at the end of this chapter, can, can finally, once we've made it through, say, without a doubt, we know who Jesus is. And then we can gather with the other disciples and understand that the cross is his necessary destiny for our good and for his glory. And as we move towards that horizon of Jesus' atoning death, our hearts are ready to worship the crucified Lord and to celebrate his victorious resurrection. So how do we follow Jesus through this passage? I think it's best to just, just walk with him. Look at these first few verses. During these days, another large crowd, another large crowd, Palu Aklu. It's just a big gang of people. Exact same phraseology as chapter 6, verse 34. That's why he says another large crowd. He wants us to remember that this has happened already. That there has been another gathering of the hungry, another gathering of the interested, another gathering of those who are considering what it means to follow Jesus. And this crowd has been with him for quite some time and they have run out of provisions. No 7-Elevens. They can just walk in and, and get a chimichurri off the roller. You shouldn't do that, by the way. It's not safe or wise. But to come by food was to plan ahead in the ancient world. And maybe they had provisions for a day or two, but it's been three days, verse 2. They've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if you're in the, if you're in the crowd on this day and you hear Jesus have this conversation with his disciples, the thing that would strike you about what you're noticing about Jesus when, when, when this is all said and done and you go back home and you tell your friends and they say, what was he like? You were with him three days. I think the first thing you would say about Jesus, the first thing you would notice is what you see in verse three, his compassion. You'd notice his compassion. Again, that's the word that was used in chapter 6, verse 34, because the people were shepherdless. And here the compassion of Jesus is on display, not because of their spiritual condition alone, though I do think that becomes his concern as the verses move on. It's just a general care for these people. He sees them not as disembodied souls. He sees them as people who need lunch. He cares about their physical needs. In fact, he anticipates, verse 3, if he sends them home without food, they'll collapse on the way. Because some of them have come a long distance. What do we see about the compassion of Jesus in this passage? Well, I think what's so 
so lovely about it, so beautiful about the compassion of Christ here, is first its context. The compassion of Jesus is on display not in chapter, not like it was in chapter six among the the people of Israel exclusively. If you've been following the geography of where we are, remember last week we we highlighted Jesus' circuitous route moving from Tyre, Sidon, and then down around the, the northern region of Galilee out to the Decapolis, the ten Gentile cities. Look, there was lots and lots of Jews in this area, but this isn't Jewish territory. And so this crowd would have been a mixed crowd, a crowd of all kinds of people, And I think Mark is even highlighting that, though he doesn't say that they're Gentiles because they're not exclusively Gentiles. But he says, in Jesus' words, have come a long way. Makrothen is the word in Greek. It's a word used throughout the Septuagint to talk about Gentiles. When God says in Isaiah 60, verse 4, that he will call a people from afar. That's what he's talking about. People that are Macrothan, they're, they're far off, they're, they're outsiders. Jeremiah 46, 27, he uses the word the same way. It's also used throughout the New Testament in this way. Ephesians 2, 17, uh, when, when Jesus is uh, talking about he preached to those, Paul says, Jesus preached to those who were far off. Or Peter in Acts 2, 39 He said, the promise is for you and your children and for those who are Macrothan, far off, outsiders. And so I think it's important to note that the the compassion of Jesus is not exclusive to those disciples that he's called. The compassion of Jesus is is broad-hearted. It extends to a, a massive crowd of Likely 12,000 people if it's 4,000 men. Counting women and children and babies and everything else. There's over 10,000 people gathered to to hear him, to to listen to him, to hang on his words. And and he has a general feeling of compassion towards all of them. You know, our belief in the sovereign love of Jesus Christ, that he has a a particular love for his, his chosen people, for his family, is a wonderful, vital, and important truth. But it should never make us think that there isn't a benevolence in God towards all his creatures. And that's on display here in just an ordinary way. Jesus doesn't want these people to pass out and die because they're hungry. Our Lord is compassionate and kind. And when he looks at this multitude, he sees not their flaws first and foremost. He just looks at them and sees they have nothing to eat. They're hungry and he wants to meet their needs. You see, the heart of Jesus Christ appears in this moment. And you can see that even though this crowd would be full of those who would not ultimately be followers of Jesus. Some of these people were there for lots of the wrong reasons. This crowd is going to be thinned as the persecution and uh, opposition to Jesus increases. But nevertheless, Jesus' tender heart towards them 
is displayed before he even dies on the cross. He has a love for his own believing people. He has an electing love. But we ought never to deny that Jesus practiced what he preached. Matthew 5.44, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And Jesus is about to do good to all men. I hope you, as you grow as a Christian, you increase in your love for the brethren. That your love for God's people, for your brothers and sisters in Christ is is unmistakable and great. But I hope that when you, you follow Jesus long enough, you will learn to look at the crowd the way Jesus does with compassion, with benevolence, with care, with regard. And so I think that's the first thing you would know is towards these outsiders, some of them must have been Gentiles coming from a long way off. Jesus cares about them. No need to qualify that. I'm still a Calvinist, just so you know. You don't have to be ugly and nasty. In fact, real ones aren't. So that's the compassion of Jesus. I think you'd notice another thing. You'd notice the, the dullness of these disciples. Here's their, their conversation with Christ. Uh, you'd notice that they're asking all the wrong questions. Where in this desolate place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? And Jesus asks them, how many loaves do you have? I mean, this has got to cause some deja vu for them. But when Jesus asks this question, you answer, and they have seven loaves. Now, much has been made of the number seven, a number of completion, a number of uh, significance in the Bible. Remember before in Mark chapter 6, it was 12 loaves, and that was supposed to represent to some people the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, it might likely was just everybody had a loaf. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't that complicated. Uh, there probably isn't fancy numerology going on here, but you know, I just want you to know that in case you run into somebody who's excited about numbers in the Bible. And it's always best in that situation just to go, all right, that's good. To, that's neat. Good observation. Okay. Uh, and so there's seven lobes because there's seven lobes. I think that's the best way to think about it. And so he takes the seven lobes. And then once again, in all these bread miracles, the one who identifies himself as the bread of life, the one who would, every Jewish person knew this, this phrase, the, that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the, the mouth of God, bread to people, the Jewish people was symbolic of God's sustenance and care. And so bread was, was kind of shorthand for, for food. Bread was shorthand for the, the provision of God. And it, it stood in the place of even the, the word of God because as it sustained their physical bodies, they knew that only God could sustain them spiritually. And so here you have the bread of life holding a loaf of bread, one of these seven loaves out in front of the people. And he does two things here. He, in this passage, gives thanks for the bread. In Mark chapter six, he blesses the bread. Probably the same concept. It's a prayer. It's an acknowledgement that this is a gift from God. 
And then he breaks the bread and gives the bread to his disciples to set before the people, and they do so. You know, Mark is writing this long after the resurrection of Christ. And every time the Christians gathered, they would do this. They would take bread, they would give thanks, bless it, break it, and distribute it. And then they would pass around a cup of wine and they would drink it after giving thanks and blessing it. And in doing, they would remember the Lord's death in their place and his body broken for them. And so if there's any image to take, it's not the image of the number seven. It's the image of remembering when Jesus broke this loaf. He wasn't instituting the Lord's Supper here, but the imagery for Mark is undeniable. He gives thanks, he breaks, and he passes to the people. They're not even close to understanding his death. They're certainly not starting to take the Lord's Supper. They're just hungry. But to see this in hindsight must have been a beautiful reminder Because though the disciples didn't have a fat clue and the crowd had no idea, they didn't have a Eucharistic theology, Mark did. And we know Jesus did. And so as he broke this bread, Mark at least is mindful that Jesus' body will be broken, his blood will be spilled. And this symbol will be instituted for all his followers for all time until his return to remember Jesus' sacrifice. And then some fish. This seems like kind of an afterthought. It's, it's, not, it's pulled separately. And, and I think probably why Mark puts it that way is either that the disciples were like, oh yeah, by the way, I got some fish. It's a few sardines. It's the word for small fish. Or he wanted that bread to just sit there in our understanding. But either way, he brings out these little fish now and Jesus thanks the Lord for them as well. Little fish giving thanks and tells the disciples, pass these out too. And I think that was, that was also in God's providence. This was so the people could have a full meal. I mean, you can eat bread and carbo load and make your, your way back, but a little protein, let's go. Got a good meal now. And so in verse eight, the people ate and they were satisfied. I don't know if Mark had Isaiah 25, 6 through 8 in his mind. That beautiful end of the age feast where the Messiah puts forth a banquet for his people and they eat and are satisfied. I don't know if Mark was thinking of it. But anytime Jesus feeds his people, either in the Gospels or when we eat the supper together, it's pointing towards a meal in the age to come that will be truly satisfying. And so the people are fed and cared for, and the disciples are somewhat confused. They just don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't understand Jesus' great compassion. They don't understand uh, Jesus's identity they don't understand his miraculous power in all its fullness and what they should have understood is that nothing is impossible for Christ i mean they're with god 
How are they concerned about quantity right now? I mean, he's taken care of them this far in the storm. He has shown his power over disease and demons and death and paralysis and deafness. I mean, he's done all of these things and and now they wonder if he can make a sandwich. J.C. Rao noticed this. And he said it this way. We must never allow ourselves to doubt Christ's power to supply the spiritual needs of all his people. He has bread enough to spare for every soul that trusts in him. Weak, infirm, corrupt, empty as believers feel themselves, let them never despair while Jesus lives. In him there is a boundless store of mercy and grace laid up for the use of all his believing members and ready to be bestowed on all who ask in prayer. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Let us never doubt Christ's providential care for the temporal needs of all his people. He knows their circumstances. He's acquainted with all their necessities. He will never allow them to lack anything that is really for their good. His heart is not changed since he ascended up on high and sat down at the right hand of God. He still lives who had compassion on the hungry crowd in the wilderness and supplied their need. How much more, may we suppose, will he supply the need of those who trust him? He will supply them without fail. Their faith may occasionally be tried. They may sometimes be kept waiting and be brought very low, but the believer shall never be left entirely destitute. Bread shall be given him, his water shall be sure. The disciples didn't see it. But I wonder if you see it sitting on the edge of this crowd. And I wonder if you can match it like J.C. Ryle did to your own spiritual needs. Just a fresh awareness of how much you need Christ. You need his guidance. You need his provision. You need his, his help, his, his sustenance, his, his grace in your life. And I hope that you wouldn't be doubtful like the disciples are of if he can take care of you. He can meet all your needs. That's the kind of Jesus we serve. I love Ryle that he's not less able now that he's ascended on high at God's right hand. He's more able to meet your needs. He's more able to take care of you. He's more able to to show you that with Christ all things are possible. As we move through this story, the people eat and are satisfied. And to see the provision of God is always to see leftovers. I hope you know that. Whenever you have leftovers at your house from a ramen feast, Whenever you have leftovers from the restaurant that you box up and take back, you ought to always tap that leftover and say, God did it. God did it. Yeah, maybe you had self-control and didn't eat everything on your plate. But anytime there's leftovers, God did it. In Jesus' miracles, there's always leftovers. In this case, seven basketfuls. It's a different kind of basket. In Mark 6, it's a coffinos. A little Jewish bag basket thing. Something that the people carried around. And they filled up 12 of those left over. In 
In this one, it's the stupus. It's the Greek word stupus. I don't think you pronounce it like that, but I like to say it like that. It's a bag a person can fit in. It's a big, like, big old basket thing. It's, it's big. And that's what they filled up. Of broken pieces that were left over. Just another reminder for these disciples that, that Christ's power is sufficient. And that when he meets needs, he meets them all the way. He satisfies their desires. It's powerful. But that's not the end of the story. I think that you have to keep going to really understand what Jesus is doing here. Verse 9, about 4,000 men were present, having sent them away. Now they've been fed. They're, they're, they're taken care of. He gets into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Amantha. We don't really know where this is, uh, but the, the commentators want to fight about it for a couple pages. Let's just say Jesus went somewhere, Okay. What happens next is, is the Pharisees come and they start to question Jesus. You know, he's coming back from pagan lands and, and they've got lots of questions. And, and their intention is not to have their questions answered. As you see in verse 11, their intentions are to harm him, to test him, to trap him, to show him that he is not who he thinks he is. And so they ask him for a sign from heaven. They want likely an eschatological wonder, like you know, Jesus, split the heavens. Make God talk to us from, from up high. There's no genuine faith here. They've already begun their plot to kill him. And now they want to just expose him, trap him, control him. This is very different than the, the hungry crowd that is humbly following Jesus in the wilderness. I mean, they followed Jesus in, a, in an almost reckless way, right? They didn't have enough stuff. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And I don't think the people really cared. They were just happy to be with Jesus. These guys also follow Jesus, but they follow him for all the wrong reasons. They follow him to trap him, to trick him, to question him, to expose him. And so they say, do something big for us. And then this phrase is used, which is only used here. Sigh is used all over the Gospels, but deeply sigh, kind of a compound phrase. It's only here. It's some kind of guttural. <sighs> you do not want to hear Jesus deeply sigh at you. And the Pharisees did. And so he asks a rhetorical question generally. Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? You see, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of, of the day. They were the ones with the power. They were in control. They represented God to the people in, in kind of the most obvious ways. They were the spiritual leadership. And so Jesus sees in them the whole generation. They embody the problem in Israel today. It's a generation that asks for a miraculous sign. They want signs, they want wonders, they want this kind of show, but they're rejecting Messiah, who's right there in front of them. They want his benefits, they want uh, something you know, remarkable, they're not satisfied with God in the flesh. And so he says, I'll tell you the truth, 
No sign will be given to it. Now, the Gospel of John is full of miracles, and John calls them signs. Jesus does lots of signs. He just did a big old sign in Johannine vocabulary. The feeding of the crowd. What does he mean? No, no sign will be given to it. What he means is no sign on command. No, I'm not going to perform on command. The Pharisees are treating him like a dog, trying to make him do a trick. And what it solicits is not just frustration from Jesus, but I think it's appropriate to see this as, as sorrow. And I think as you're following Jesus closely, if, if somehow you are in the boat and then on the shore and then the Pharisees come and you hear him say this and you, you hear his deep guttural sigh, you can see in it a frustration, a, a sorrow from Jesus. And why is Jesus so frustrated? What is troubling our Lord here? When the Pharisees question him and when they demand from him, there's a lot to this mournful sigh. And I think, it, I think it's similar to the compassion that we saw here. But here I think that there's a sorrow there. Because these people followed Jesus because they wanted to hear him. These guys are following Jesus because they want to trap him and trick him. And expose him. And so I think what he's sighing at there. I think what he's frustrated with. In this generation and their leadership. Is one thing. It's unbelief. That's what causes Jesus to be grieved. It's the sin that keeps them from him. A heart that mourns for unbelief is what we see in the Lord. The ruin and despair that these religious people were bringing on themselves and everyone who would follow them and listen to them. False teaching, unbelief, rejection of Jesus is something that caused Jesus to sigh in a deeply sorrowful way. I think if you're following Jesus closely, you, you'd actually care about the, the large crowds of people that you encounter in the university campus, in a public gathering. You'd be aware of, of the, the human needs that surround you. But I think on another level, when you see a crowd of people, when you're around a lot of people, if you don't have any of this in you, I wonder if you even know what it, what it means to follow Jesus. If unbelief doesn't stir your soul and cause you to deeply sigh. These Pharisees are intentionally unconverted. And Jesus is right to hold them in, in pity, to grieve over them. Because they're leading little ones astray. The prophets were like this. Ezekiel used to sigh at the abominations of the people as they were in rebellion to God. Paul is like this in Romans 9 when he says, I have a heavy heart and continual sorrow for my, my kinsmen. A compassion for souls is on display in our Lord's 
regard for these unbelieving Pharisees. And he gets in the boat and crosses to the other side. Leaves them in their unbelief and sin. And now he has this little interaction with his disciples. And so we see compassion and dullness of the disciples. And we see sorrow in, in the heart of the Lord. And, and now we see a warning. We see a warning here. And, and this is, this is Jesus' takeaway to give to them and, and I think to give to us. And it's kind of a goofy little interaction on the disciples' part because they had forgotten to bring bread, which is funny because they had 12 human-sized baskets of it. Seven, I'm sorry, it was seven. Numbers are hard. Could have grabbed some of that, fellas, because now it's been a whole day and we're hungry again. So where's the bread? Andrew, did you get the bread? No. Judas, did you get the bread? Nope, what, nothing, what? <laughs> Nobody got the bread. They'd forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf. <laughs> Somebody had a loaf in the boat, wrapped up someplace. Peter, I always picture Peter being chubby, so I think he had the loaf. <laughs> it's not the Bible, it's just it's my thing. We'll see someday. And so they have this one loaf. And Jesus uses this as another opportunity to preach to them about bread. He already preached about bread when he broke it and thanked it and, and showed his compassion on the people and showed his abundance and his miraculous power. But now he's got this one little loaf in the boat and Jesus uses it as an object lesson, verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warns them. Watch out, cuidate. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. I love their response. Jesus is giving them this profound sentence. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. The Pharisees, the religious teachers. Herod, the guy who killed John the Baptist, the, the king of, of Judea. Watch out for the Tetrarch of Galilee and his yeast. Watch out for the Pharisees and their yeast. And the disciples go, He's mad we don't have bread. Literally, that's what, they, that's what they think this is about. Verse 16, they discussed this with one another and said, I like that this was a discussion. Okay, let's, let's huddle up, fellas. So he said that the yeast of Herod, yeast of the Pharisees. I mean, what do you think it means? Andrew, what do you think it means? Well, you know, I... I'm going, I'm going that he's mad about the bread. Judas, what do you think? He, oh, nothing? What? Were you guys talking about something? Always had his hand in the money bag. You know, that's the play. Peter, what do you think it means? Bread? Okay, let's go with bread. Yeah, he's mad about the bread. 
Verse 17, aware of their discussion, (laughs) Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? That word blepo, the Greek word for see, is coming up in the next miracle in the section we'll look at next week. That word understanding has to do with the question he's going to ask Peter, who do men say that I am? The condition of their hearts is something Jesus is always concerned about. He always preaches on the heart. Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see a blind man miracle coming? Ears but fail to hear the deaf man miracle that preceded? And don't you remember, this is the second occurrence of a feeding miracle. Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they responded. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Now, he wasn't trying to get them to figure out some kind of magical numerology, which is what I initially was trying to unlock in this passage as I studied it weeks ago, going, why is Jesus making so much of these numbers? And that was me as a, as a student of the Bible, kind of you know looking under the rocks. And you, 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 when you're studying for, for a message, you, you come up with all kinds of stuff. And a lot of it needs to be put under the fern. And some of it really helps you, exploratory questions. And my question is like, why? This was my question. Why does he make so much of the the numbers of leftovers here? And I think that that question in my study is the equivalent of of this. I think he's talking about bread. I think I was just missing it. Because Jesus has just told them what the point is. The point is seeing and hearing and understanding. But it's seeing and hearing and understanding what? Well, it's moving towards the confession of Peter. It's about to have this wonderful, miraculous healing of the blind man that's going to be a parable for this whole thing. But he's already told them exactly what they're supposed to see and understand. And it has everything to do with this sentence. Watch out for the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. You see, their understanding is towards who Jesus is. And the obstacle of that understanding is what Jesus is warning them about. And the danger for these disciples and the danger for these disciples is the same. If we fail to remember what Jesus has done, if we fail to remember how powerful Jesus is, if we fail to remember who Jesus is, we can fall into two different traps. And Jesus has put them up like guardrails on a stretch of of highway going up a, a mountain pass so that you wouldn't fall off either side, that the danger is is laid out for you. And one of those guardrails is the yeast of the Pharisees. What could prevent you from seeing and hearing and understanding who Jesus is? Well, the first danger would be the yeast of the Pharisees. And how did they miss who Jesus is? Well, they missed it because they were self-righteous and concerned about external formalism. 
Do you want to miss Jesus completely? Then enjoy a legalistic version of Christianity. Make it all about externals, all about rules you follow, all about the clothes you wear, the things you don't do and do. Make your religion all kinds of extra stuff and you will not see the Son of God. In fact, you will have questions about his propriety. Why would he, why, why, why is he doing that? Why would he save that kind of a person? Why would he gather up a, a handful of grain? I would never do anything like that. That's the first guardrail that would keep you from seeing and understanding who Jesus is. Man-made, man-centered, external, legalistic religion. It's so dangerous. It blinds you from the freedom and liberty that Christ's purchased in his forgiving grace and love. And then the other, guardrail. Seems unexpected, doesn't it? What do these 12 Jewish guys have to do with Herod? Yucky King Herod. Bacchanalian feast King Herod. Lustful, foul, prideful. What? The yeast of Herod? Well, what do Herod have in common with the Pharisees? They both don't see and hear and perceive and understand who Jesus really is. And what is it that kept Herod from Jesus? Well, we learned in just a few chapters ago, he was very interested in the preaching of John. It tickled his fancy. He kept him as a pet in his dungeon until John came between his lust and his progress and he cut his head off. On one side, you have man-centered and legalistic religion that keeps you from Jesus Christ. On the other side, you have worldliness and skepticism that doubts and questions who Jesus really is and refuses to acknowledge his righteous demands. One side, you have overzealous, uh, over-exuberant, man-made righteousness. And on the other side, you have lust and worldliness and sin. And these two things, dear disciples, will keep you from seeing who Jesus really is. They will keep you from beholding the glory and power of the Son of Man. You will not be able to ascend to the confession of Christ as Lord if you do not see and perceive that the way to Jesus is not through religious ritual or through external requirement or through man-made rules of conduct. And the way of Jesus, the way to Jesus is never through sin and compromise and worldliness and skepticism. The way to Jesus is simply by hanging on those words that he speaks. Opening up your eyes to behold and see, to perceive and understand that no matter how many times he miraculously multiplies bread and does what Jesus does, you just keep telling yourself who Jesus is. And you just keep reminding yourself what God has done. You see his compassion and you see his power and you know that he has everything that you need and you don't grow just familiar with him. You grow in love, appreciation, joy, and worship 
of him. Your dull understanding can be amplified by legalistic self-righteousness. And the dullness of your understanding and the hardness of your heart can be exacerbated by your playing around with worldliness and sin and skepticism. Jesus was trying to correct their understanding. He was trying to show them that in order to perceive, in order to understand, in order to have a soft heart, they needed to see and hear Jesus on his terms. They needed to enter his kingdom in the way that he prescribed. And the closeness and devotion of the disciples will only be made real, will only be realized as they follow him to the cross. Not to where they think he should go. As they worship him as he is, not as they think he should be. False religion can destroy your relationship with Jesus. Worldliness and sin can wreck and derail your relationship with Jesus. And the only solution is to stay right here following Jesus. And he's headed towards Calvary. Father, thank you for your word and how you Show us wonderful things from it. Help us to be on guard against those leavening agents. A little bit of yeast causes that bread to rise up. A little bit of legalism blinds our eyes from Jesus. A little bit of worldliness makes us think we don't need repentance and faith. That we can add Jesus on, live how we want to. But the call to discipleship is a call to come and die, to follow Christ and adore him as he is and go with him where he calls. So Father, thank you for the glorious Son of God who died for us and lives to intercede for us forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.